0: You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at South Christ Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. I'll go ahead and grab a seat and enjoying and worshiping with y'all this morning. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra. If you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame in that, no judgment, all right? The book of Ezra, uh, if you're a guest this morning, we've been going through a series, uh, should finish around, I think September of 2021, which man, who's ready for 2021? Yes, I'm ready, hallelujah. Um, but it should end around then. We're basically going through pretty much every book of the Bible. Some of the books were doubling up, like we doubled up First and Second Kings and then, First and Second Chronicles, but the idea is to kind of tip our toe in every book of the Bible and maybe become familiar with some things that were not at the time. So again, uh, the Book of Ezra. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents. Um, I know I already kind of asked this, but I, I, earlier I asked who's excited for Thanksgiving. Let me be more specific: who's excited for some Thanksgiving food? Yes, yes. Hallelujah! Absolutely. Um, what, one thing about Thanksgiving is sometimes you try some new things that you haven't had before. Sometimes it's on accident. I remember, I think it was two or three years ago, uh, We, my wife and I normally cheat. Like we just order a lot of food from Market Street. You can judge me, okay? Um, <laughs> but it's, well, if you try it, you won't go back because it's so easy. Anyways, um, we thought what I had or we thought we had a uh, sweet potato casserole, which I love sweet potato casserole because it's kind of like dessert in the meal. You know what I mean? And so I'm fixing to eat some sweet potato casserole. Well, then I open it up and the Market Street label that they have for us says it's carrot souffle. And I'm like, carrot souffle, what is that? It looks like sweet potato casserole, but it's carrot souffle. Well, I try it and it changed my life. <laughs> it, I still don't know what carrot souffle is, but it is good, okay? And so this year we have carrot souffle coming uh, from Market Street. It made me think, so what was, what was unexpected actually turned out to be a treasure. Like I wasn't expecting much and it was awesome. It makes me think, one of our kids uh, a few weeks ago, I'm, I'm just weird when it comes to food. My wife is always like, um, I, she's like, this is why you're gassy, because you eat too much weird food, okay? I just said that, it's for being real, okay? Anyways, so uh, I like to eat, uh, do you know what dates are? A little, it looks like an overgrown raisin, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so the faces I'm getting right now are awesome. Ew, you nasty. Well, I like dates, and every now and then um, I'll eat a, a date like it's dessert. Um, one time I was checking out at United, and the girl was like, What are these? I was like, They're dates. Have you ever had one? I was like, I mean, like the food, not like going out. Anyways, uh, <laughs> getting in trouble there. And so I'll have a, a, a date, the food, after dinner every now and then. And so I guess it's about, a month or two ago and I, uh, I get some and our, my kids are like, hey, I, what is that? We wanna try some. And so I, I tell them it's a date and I pull it apart and it's all like, just, it is weird looking. And so I set it on uh, my daughter's plate and she says, I don't like that, it scares me. Because <laughs> um, it looks gross. And Lauren was like, Brandon, you're traumatizing our kids. Um, well, sure enough, she tried it and she loved it. Because again, dates, they're basically just sugar, right? But what was weird to her and uh, unfamiliar and foreign when she tried it, she actually ended up loving it. Um, And who knows, maybe that'll be our dessert for Thanksgiving. Not really, no, I'm not that weird. Um, I think a lot of times the books of the Old Testament can be like that, in that you open up some of these books and you're like, I don't like that, it scares me, right? There's some odd things going on or you're just unfamiliar with it. But the reality is as we study the books, even, yes, of the Old Testament, we see there are many unexpected, wonderful treasures even in these unfamiliar books. And that's how the book of Ezra is. So this morning, rather than looking at one particular passage, we're going to go through kind of like if you were reading it almost devotionally and devotionally, and see just some treasures kind of scattered throughout the book of Ezra. Now, before we do that, I think it's important we remember, and this is important anytime you're reading scripture to know the context of the book. It's called the literary and historical context. And that shouldn't bore you. That's not like nerd talk. That's just, we should know what's going on. Kind of like if you went into a movie and only you walked in halfway through, stayed for four minutes and walked out and you're like, that's the dumbest movie I've ever seen. We would be like, dude, you like, you have no idea what's going on. You can't say that's a bad movie. You have no idea what's going on. The same is true with the books of bible of the bible that if you just flip open the book and read a few verses like that doesn't make much sense well of course it doesn't make much sense because you have no idea what is going on so let's talk for a second about what is the context of the book of ezra well i know earlier i referenced the temple stuff going on we'll get to that in a minute what was the context well really we have to look at the literary context of all of scripture so while there's 66 books this is ultimately one big book with one massive master theme throughout. So where we're at in this point in scripture is, as we know, God created the world and it was good. Awesome, way to go. And then in chapter three, we didn't last very long. Adam and Eve sinned and now in human nature, we are sinful, broken creatures. Well, in spite of that, we know that God promised, we're gonna talk about this more in a minute. God promised to Abraham that he would bless the nations through him. And even God promised to Adam and Eve that uh, uh, there would be a seed of the woman, so a descendant of Adam and Eve who would come and crush the head of the serpent of Satan. So those are some promises we have early in Genesis. And as we move through the Old Testament, we see that God is gonna work through uh, the people of Abraham, ultimately the Israelites. So you see then uh, Moses, and they come through the wilderness and God makes a covenant with the people of Israel and tells them, I'm way oversimplifying this, but if you'll follow me and obey me, things are gonna go well. If you disobey me, things are gonna go poorly. You'll be driven from the land. You're gonna experience more hardship than you ever imagined. Well, in Ezra, this should be no surprise to you if you've kind of followed along in the series, that's what has happened. They've been, we saw especially in the book of Judges and then in 1 and 2 Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, the people had over and over again, been in this downward spiral of sin and rebellion against God, running from God, being, as Romans says, enemies of God and turning from him. And so they had they had experienced exile. They've been cast out of the promised land. And to give even a little specificity, um, this is just from the ESV study Bible. And as a little side note, um, study Bibles can be of great help in just giving some context to what you're reading. So where we pick up in Ezra chapter 1, at this point, Jerusalem, remember, was the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. It had been conquered by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, but many of the Jews had been taken to Babylon in 586 B.C. So they'd been exiled there, so taken from their homeland and taken to Babylon. And then in 539 B.C., so you fast forward, uh, King Cyrus of Persia overthrew the Babylonian king. At that time, it was uh, Nabonidus. And in 538 BC, so one year after the Persian king had conquered the Babylonian king, and 539, or excuse me, 538 BC, is where we pick up in Ezra chapter one. So they've been in exile because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness. Here's where we pick up, Ezra chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... And rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. I think he was the King of Persia was close. Like God is not just the King of Jerusalem. He's everywhere, but he was close. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this is a this is a crazy moment. The king of Persia is saying, hey, I'm going to let the exiles go back to Jerusalem and not just go back there. They're going to get to rebuild the what? The temple. And he says, hey, wherever you're at, let the people in your district of Persia, let them give you some gold and silver to help you go back and rebuild the temple. This is amazing. So go back and not just rebuild the temple. He's saying, go back and worship your God as you used to when you were in Jerusalem in that same way. Now, it's interesting in verse one, that the word of the Lord might, excuse me, but the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So kind of two things going on here. Even though Jeremiah and Isaiah come later in our record of scripture, the prophecies that are being referred to in Ezra precede, or from your perspective, precede where we're at in Ezra. Does that make sense? So even though it's later, you get to it later in your pages, technically, Jeremiah and Isaiah had already been prophesying and were prophesying at this time. And both Jeremiah and Isaiah had prophesied, because of what God told them, that this would happen, that the temple would be rebuilt. And you can read about that in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29. I wanna quote to you, because I think it's very clear, Isaiah 44, it says, "The Lord 44, 28 to be exact. It says, the Lord who says of Cyrus he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So the Lord in chapter one, verses one through four, is, was stirring in Cyrus to go to send the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He was stirring him because that was what God declared would happen through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Y'all tracking with me? And then more than that, I referenced this a second ago in kind of the context, more than that, all along, even though God had told them, if you disobey me, bad things are going to happen if you don't walk in the covenant. But still, God had promised them, really regardless of what they did, that ultimately he would preserve a remnant and that God would bring a savior, a Messiah from the people of Israel. That even if they disobeyed him, he still had a plan for them. No tracking? Can you imagine the moment that all the people that are scattered throughout Persia and they begin to get word that the king, the most powerful man on the planet, has said, hey, I want the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. So it wasn't just this moment of like, man, we get to go back to our homeland. Like, could you imagine if we were exiled like to New York and we got to come back to Texas? Like, how, I'm just kidding, <laughs> But seriously, how excited would they have been? Not just because they get to go back to their homeland, but because they realize in that moment, God has not forgotten about us. Yes, we're in a foreign land. Yes, we've been conquered, but there's still hope because our God has not forgotten about us. Just as he prophesied through Isaiah and Jeremiah that we would get to go back and rebuild the temple, God is actually doing that. God is actually keeping his word. He hasn't forsaken us. So when you're studying scripture, You want to think about what's their context and our context and realize that while they are different worlds in a sense, the principles still apply. I've said this before, kind of like whether you're in Dallas or Lubbock, while those are two different cities and different places and different, maybe even cultures, you could say, ultimately, you're still in Texas, right? There's principles that still apply. Similar with scripture. You have their world, our world, but the principles, the truths of God still apply. So what is the truth? Again, if if I'm reading through this devotionally and as I'm studying scripture, what do I see here? Real simple, but amazing truth. Here's the first thing, really simple, but right here in scripture, God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. He keeps his word. What he says he will do, he does. What he says will happen, will happen. And let's just be clear, this is not uh, what this is not. This is not this prosperity, health and wealth thing of like, well, God, you know, God's gonna keep his word and say, so you know what, it's my, it's my best life now and I'm gonna be rich, I'm gonna be famous, I'm never gonna get sick. You know what, believe it or not, God never promised that, did he? <laughs> he never promised that. So if you're trying to say God keeps his word and claim those promises, you're gonna be let down all the time. So what has he promised? Just a few things real quick. From scripture, Psalm 34, 18 says that he's near to the brokenhearted. If you're in covenant with God, your relationship with him, that's a promise. Whether you feel it or not, he's near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He told us in John that in this world, you will have trouble. Do you have trouble in this world? Yes, but he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. So yes, your life is gonna have difficulties, but Jesus says, I'm bigger than your difficulty. I have overcome the world. I love what um, Philippians 1.6 says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what is another amazing promise of God that we know he will keep? That if you're a Christian, he saved you by grace through faith in Christ, that he will finish what he started in you. Is that good news to anybody? I know it is to me. I, I'm a work in progress. <laughs> he didn't just, he doesn't like work on you and then say, well, man, you're just not really coming together. I'm gonna throw you in the trash heap. <laughs> no, he's gonna finish what he started. God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. He's promised to, lev- to never leave you nor forsake you. He's always with you. What's cool about this passage, while Cyrus was the king It's clear that God was the sovereign king even over Cyrus. That's why we say Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, right? Because while Cyrus was big and powerful, the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus. It's like Proverbs says that the the king's heart is as water in the Lord's hand, right? He directs it where he wants it to go. So we see from verses one through four that God is kind of a bigger word, that he's sovereign. He's in control. He reigns. He rules. It would not matter if we say, you know what? God, he's gonna keep his promises. He loves keeping his word. It wouldn't matter if he had no power to do so. So don't miss that in the text. That It's not only that he he delights in keeping his word and his promises, that's who he is. We see from the text that he's sovereign, so he has the ability to keep his word, to keep his promises. God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promises. Even when, like Judah, you've gotten yourself in a mess. Even when you're the one that's messed things up, he's still faithful to his word. I guess it's uh, Tell Carolina Tate Stories Day, but I think I showed this in the worship center uh, about two months ago, so if you were in there, I apologize that you've heard this, but um, one day I'd gone to get dinner or something for the family, and I was driving back in, and Lauren and the kids were out in the driveway, and right as I was pulling around the corner and hitting the button to raise the garage door, Carolina Tate, I don't, I don't think she planned this. There's no way. She's, no way. But she looks at me, pulling around the corner, and as I'm hitting the button, she grabs a hold of the handles on the garage door. Now, she only weighs like 25 pounds at two and a half. Like, you're gonna go to college and still be in a car seat, girl, if you don't start gaining some weight. Like, this is a, she's a little tiny thing. But she grabs a hold. Of the garage door handles. And sure enough, that garage door starts going up and I just see, I won't turn around, but I just see her little head going like this. And my wife said that she was going, mama, 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 help me, help me. So Lauren looks at me like, what is happening? Runs over. She got about halfway up the garage uh, and Lauren grabbed her off. Well, sure enough, I pull into the garage and Caroline Tate says, daddy, I ride the garage. And I'm like, don't, please don't do that ever again. Right? Like, which the cool thing is we found out like, man, we're just gonna save money this year. We're not gonna go to Disney. We're just gonna ride the garage door, right? Like, so dads, if you wanna do that, it's a little tip there. Um, what was funny in that moment is Lauren did not stand back and wait for Carolina Tate to ask for help, right? You got yourself into this mess, you can figure it out, right? She wasn't like, well, Carolina Tate, that was a foolish decision. You should have thought about that, right? Her mom instincts kicked in and she just grabbed her off, right? I was trying to hit the button, but I felt like my finger was frozen. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> right? there, as, as a parent, and even if you're not a parent, you can still resonate with this because hopefully you experienced it with good parents. As a parent, there's almost this unspoken like covenant and promise of like, I'm going to take care of my child. That's why parents talk about, uh, like, They don't call it daddy bear, but like there is that kind of daddy bear instinct. There's certainly a mama bear instinct, right? The moms are giving me that, mm-hmm, all right? Of this covenant of I will protect my child. I've made this promise. I'm gonna take care of them. There's a picture there, I think you know where I'm going with this, of even when we've done something foolish and we're the ones that got ourselves in a mess, God is still a faithful covenant, promise-keeping, word-keeping God. And whether or not you're quick enough to be like, God, help me, help me. He acts, not because you ask, but because he keeps his promises. That's really good news. Because sometimes I'm too foolish to ask God for help when I need it. Sometimes I'm too foolish to realize that I'm in a dangerous place, that I've made a mess of things. But God in his faithfulness and his goodness still keeps his promises. So, what's the application of that? Be thankful. Rest. Knowing that he keeps his word, he keeps his promises. One thing God did not promise is that life would be easy. Kind of already hinted at that, but he he didn't promise that. We're gonna go ahead and if, turn to chapter four. And I'm gonna give you a little context. As you read through... Chapters 1 through 3, we see that thousands headed back to Jerusalem. They began to rebuild the altar for offerings. They began the work of the foundation of the temple. Um, there's even in chapter 3, verse 11, there's this big moment. It says, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the Lord had been laid. So there's kind of even this epic moment of, man, we're back, we're rebuilding the temple. God is moving. We're gonna praise him. It's gonna be amazing. Now look at verse, uh, chapter four, verse one. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses And said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, King of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, King of Persia. And then you read in verse six, they went on to write a letter to the next King, Ahasuerus, to try to get them to stop the work of building. So they're there to rebuild the temple and these people were coming to discourage us. So they even hired counselors to come and discourage them. Could you imagine that? Like, I want to frustrate Caitlin. I'm going to hire someone just to tick her off and discourage her and irritate her. That's messed up, right? And they write a letter to the king. Hey, we're going to stop these people. Now question. <laughs> Not a trick question. From what we know, back from chapter one, was it God's will that they rebuild the temple? Yes. So real simple truth, this should be obvious, but I need to hear this. Just because something isn't going well doesn't mean it's not God's will. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean it's not what God desires for you. I think it's the second treasure we see here. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean it's not what God desires. Just because something isn't going well doesn't mean it's not God's will for your life. Think about this. I don't think it was just the, the, uh, the people of the land that had re-inhabited Israel or Judah before the exiles came back. Um, it wasn't just them that was against them rebuilding the temple. I think ultimately behind them, it was Satan. Because Satan knew that in them rebuilding the temple, it was again a picture of the need for a sacrifice. It was again a picture of the need for a mediator between God and man. It was a picture, a signpost that pointed to the ultimate need of Jesus Christ. So Satan knew by rebuilding the temple, they're just pointing people ultimately to the coming one, Jesus. So it wasn't just that the people were against the rebuilding of the temple. Satan himself did not want them to rebuild the temple. When you are doing God's will, you should expect to face difficulty. I've heard that phrase, and I've said it. I don't like, I get what people are saying, but I think we should quit saying the safest place to be is in the middle of God's will. God's will will take you to some crazy places, right? To do some difficult things. Now, is it the safest place to be in that you find peace and joy in walking with your Savior? Sure. But it's not always gonna be easy or safe. We're pretty fickle, aren't we? We tend to walk away when things are difficult. Can you imagine? What if Moses, <laughs> leading the people out of Egypt, this is a big moment, they get to the Red Sea, and he's like, oh man, shoot, that Red Sea is big, and the army's coming, stop, never mind, clearly missed God's will here. Like, <laughs> what? Or David, right? He's got a sling and a stone, he comes out to fight Goliath, he's like, oh man, you're a big guy, aren't you? <laughs> Lord, I must have misheard you because clearly you don't want me fighting him. I don't stand a chance. <laughs> no. Often when there's a big obstacle, it might be a clue that you're on the right track because <laughs> God wants to do the impossible in and through you to show how awesome he is. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not God's desire. Just because it's, it's not going well doesn't mean it's not God's will. What if Paul would have been like, wait, you mean preaching the gospel is gonna get me in prison? bump that i ain't got time for that we wouldn't have much of what's in scripture who knows what the church would look like and without a doubt the greatest example what if jesus would have seen the coming cross and been like nah 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 god clearly i'm not hearing from you right because that looks really painful jesus saw the pain and said god god like is this your will? Yes, I'm going to do it. Not my will, but your be done. Even though it's difficult, it's your will, so I'm going to do it. How different would our world look like if you and I quit running from difficulty and just, well, maybe God's not opening that door. Maybe He's closed that door. What? <laughs> maybe He wants to empower you with the Holy Spirit to ram through the door. I don't know. <laughs> just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not God's desire. I think we are too caught up with what makes us happy and not what God wants us to do. Man, being faithful to your spouse, being a committed Christian, investing in your family, having a kingdom mindset at work, sharing the gospel, all those things, they're not necessarily easy, excuse me, not necessarily easy, but they're what God desires. It's time we man up and woman up and dig in a little bit and do the hard things. Too often, we are sissy Christians. Don't let difficulty keep you from doing what God desires for you. I love what Romans 5 says that suffering produces, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So persevere, keep going. Any idea of Christianity that thinks that there should be no suffering or difficulty is a Christianity that is without Christ. Christ. gotta hurry up. Talk about a dude that knew some difficulty. The guy this book was named after, Ezra. We're, we're gonna finish here, I'm gonna move quick. Flip over to chapter seven. 50 years pass between what we've been talking about with the temple and then Ezra finally coming. Join with me in chapter seven, verse one. And I'm so looking forward to reading all these names. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meritoth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, not like the gun, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. I, I was reading that this morning and kind of trying to prep and I was like, I feel like God put that in there just to prank preachers, right? He's like, can you read it? I don't know, probably not. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given and the king granted him all that he asked for the hands of the Lord, his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For, don't miss this, so for, because... Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, if you, if you read through really the rest of the book, you see Ezra gets there. He doesn't really get there until um, really chapter nine, but he gets there and, excuse me, he calls the people to respond to the word of God, to confess their sins and to begin to align their lives with scripture because they didn't have the new testament at that point but to align their lives with the pentateuch the first five books of the bible to align their lives with the word of god see they had the temple they had the institution and they had built a foundation for that they had not ultimately built a foundation for their lives here's the reality an institution will not change your life but the word of god will change your life here's the third treasure i want you to see God changes the world through his word. He trans, you can say it a different way. So God changes the world through his word a different way. He transforms people through people who love his word. That's why he sent Ezra, a man who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So he sent Ezra. He didn't just send another book. He sent a man of God who loved the book to take it to the people. And see, they had built the temple, but now God through Ezra was going to build the people. Because again, an institution doesn't make you strong in the Lord. The word of God makes you strong in the Lord. Amen? And That's why he sent Ezra. You can't grow as a Christian apart from the word of God. You, you're gonna have no foundation apart from the word of God. That's like trying to have Thanksgiving without ever taking a time to think about what you're thankful for. You're just left kind of empty. Or that's like trying to live a human life without drinking water. It doesn't go real well. Some of you actually try to do that with coffee during finals and stuff. But like, it doesn't work as Water and air are to the human, so is the word of God to the Christian. It is your foundation. I feel like so many of us would say, yeah, I've heard that before, the word of God is important. May it be that we don't see more transformed Christians because we don't take the word of God seriously. Could that be the problem? Could it be the problem that our communities are lacking, our churches are lacking because we don't take the word of God seriously? God is looking for people who will set their heart to study scripture and to do it and to teach it. To study it, to live it out, and to teach it, to share it with others. I'm on a a troll team, it's like a discipleship group with a couple guys from the Young Mary group. And we were talking about how so often as Christians, we just have this kind of patch on the back, lackadaisical attitude towards scripture. Where, like, you get together, whether in your small group or your friend or you're texting or whatever, you're like, man, how's your time in the Word going? And so often the, ref- the refrain, the reoccurring theme is, man, it's just tough. I'm just tired or I just can't find time for it. No, we got we to gotta grow past that. Amen? We're never going to see changed lives. <laughs> I say, like, God and His grace can do whatever He wants. But, like, with the plan of scriptures that God changes lives through word, his word. We're not gonna see changed lives if we can't grow past the, oh, it's just difficult, I just can't find time. Seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? Set your heart to study, do, to teach it, to share. What if as Christians, we quit complaining about everything and started cherishing God's word? How different would your family look? How different would our church look? How different would our community look? How different would our country look? God didn't send a politician. He sent a man who loved the word of God. You wanna influence, you wanna be a world changer in your circle of influence? Be a person who loves the word of God. Often there's nothing more powerful, more influential in changing a person's life towards the grace of God and the glory of God than a Christian who knows the word and lives it out. Right? That's what this world needs. God didn't just drop down, boom, another copy of the Pentateuch to the people in Judah. No, he sent a man who loved the word. Relationships. That's how God does it. God changes the world through his word. I gotta wrap this up. (laughs) If you're a Christian, I want you to, in this moment, I don't have any epic conclusion. We're gonna wrap it up right here. I I want you to consider which one of those three treasures in the book of Ezra do you need to walk away with today and do something about? So is it, That last one, that you need to remember that God changes the world through his word and you need to get serious about setting your heart to study and to live out and to share his word. In a moment, I want you to pray through that and consider that. Maybe for you, it's to to embrace the fact that just because something is difficult doesn't mean it's not God's desire. Just because something isn't going well doesn't mean it's not God's will. Maybe God's calling you to lean into that to rely on his grace and strength and to realize that when you're weak, you're actually strong because he's gonna empower you to keep moving through the difficulty. Or maybe it's the first that you need to rest and trust that God keeps his word. And that when all else is shaky and flimsy, God's word is a firm foundation that you can trust and lean on. Trust that his promises are true. Which one of those do you need to take and hide away in your heart? All of them, certainly, but which one mostly? Now, I wanna lastly say, we start off the service talking about the gospel and that Jesus is the true and better temple. Maybe the response for you, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, man, I still, I just need to know how I can have a right relationship with God. It's through Jesus Christ, who paid the price for your sins, rose again after he had died, and offers you forgiveness and hope and life. He would turn from your rebellious, sinful heart and turn to the grace of Jesus. There's forgiveness for you this morning. And just as they would go to the temple to meet with God, in Jesus, you are meeting with God and have a relationship with him. I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna give you just a brief minute to be still and quiet before the Lord and consider how he would have you to respond this morning. Let's pray. Let you be still for a moment. God, I pray that during this season that you would transform us. Lord, I think about what, how transformative that time must have been for the people of Judah to, to go back and to see you working in their midst. And I pray that we would see that now. Lord, I think about the fresh start they had of, of man, God's doing a work. We get to rebuild the temple. I pray that we in this room, we at this church would begin to see that you want to do a fresh work in our lives. God, I pray that that would bring joy and excitement. Lord, that as we move forward in what you have for us, that we would trust your promises, that we would keep pushing, that we would dig deep even when things are difficult. And Lord, that we would commit ourselves to delight in, to study your word, to build our lives on it, to live it out and to share it with others. God, that, that, that the foundation of your word and of living it out, would transform our lives, our families, and our communities. God, that we would no longer cast blame on others. We would no longer complain about things, but rather be world changers by digging into your word. Lord, I pray that as we sing just a little bit of this song that you would remind us that ultimately our our surest hope, our surest source of joy, our surest or only source of forgiveness and right relationship with you is the gospel of your finished work on the cross and the empty grave. God, may that be our motivation and our delight that pushes us to live for you boldly. I pray that you would stir our hearts as we sing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.